Hello and welcome to Coach Rich Rants, real takes, raw feedback, unedited and unscripted views of what's happening in youth sports, in soccer, both in the U.S. and in my local community. I will be bringing to you different takes from the perspective of either a parent of an athlete, of a player, of a coach, or as a club director and administrator. Having worn every one of those hats, I'll try to bring to you these takes from each of those perspectives. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to subscribe. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the latest edition of Coach Rich Rants. As promised, today's topic is about the pay-to-play model in youth sports, primarily in club sports and in soccer in particular. So this is one of those ones that I would put under the category of the problem with the problem with youth soccer. So if you are paying attention at all to what is going on with youth soccer and all of the problems that uh, apparently are having in the world and why we're not relevant in youth soccer. And a lot of people say it's because we're not reaching the urban areas and that we are that soccer has become a suburb sport. And I want to talk about that and probably from a different perspective than you may expect. And it's really not to say that I disagree that we shouldn't be providing more access to all income levels for the sport of soccer. I would love for that to happen. But when you get into a club environment, there are some economics at play that really make it difficult to not make it pay to play. And the entire system itself is makes it difficult to create the advanced player without putting it into that model. And let me tell you why. So when they say, first of all, that it's a, it's a suburb sport, it's a sport that's played out in the suburbs, well, here's why. First of all, the amount of space it takes to support a soccer club, aka soccer field or fields to support a soccer club, is typically something that can't be found in an urban area. So it does require to get outside of the city limits, to get out into the suburbs, where one, you've got a tax base for the community to be able to create any kind of a park that would have a field. At least in my community, there are not a lot of public, I'm sorry, privately owned clubs. A lot of them are based on the community or surrounded by a school. So because there's a tax base, because there's a community that can support a field, those fields are by and large managed by the community. And where I live, there are so few fields of quality and there are so many people vying for that field, even adults, that the cost to rent the field to support a club has become quite expensive. We're talking 100 to $150 per hour per field. So if you think about a club that may have a team starting at U9 going to U18, right? That's on the boys' side. Same thing on the girls' side. Sometimes some clubs have two teams per age group. So think about the field space required to be able to house a club of that size. Now, when you have competing clubs in the same relative community who are also using that club, add to that the recreational programs with the volunteer coaches, you can see that very quickly the cost to even rent the fields in general becomes quite expensive. And so the more people that use the fields, the more field maintenance is required, the more field maintenance is required, the more closely the community has to manage and monitor who accesses the field. So it creates sort of this problem. 
And it's so bad in some places and in some communities that the community would rather have the field sit vacant so that it could rest than for people in the community to go out and leverage the field and use the field. There are oftentimes in several parks around my area where if you see an adult out with a couple of kids, there will be someone else that says, hey, do you have a permit to use this field? Because there are so many people that are paying to use that field for camps, for clinics, for clubs, and they are taking care of the field. And part of the money that they pay pays for the maintenance that the community would prefer just to have the, sometimes it seems, have the park not be used except for, for those who pay. So it sometimes defeats the entire purpose. If you look at the high schools or the school systems, some of the schools with a higher revenue base have very nice turf fields, and those are used primarily by the school. And if they aren't in use, typically they rent the space out. And again, there is a higher demand than there is a supply, which then creates this issue where the cost to rent the field at the high school is pretty expensive. So that's just for training. And where I live, we train typically for eight to 10 weeks in the fall and probably eight to 10 weeks in the spring. And the majority of the year is spent inside. So when you go inside, you're looking at very few indoor facilities that can accommodate clubs with multiple teams. And the demand is certainly much higher than the supply. And as a result, you can find yourself paying $150 per hour per team to rent a field. Now, when you're outside and you rent a field for $100 to $150 per hour, you can fit three, four, five teams, depending on the age group, on one field. So there's some economies there. But indoor, some of the facilities are small enough that you can only train one or two teams at the most. If it is a full-size 11v11 field, you could be paying four, $500 per hour to use that field. So if you think about a team with 20 teams or a club with 20 teams, even if you train four teams an hour, that's five hours that you need for one practice. So five hours times four or $500, you could see that math adds up. And one day a week is typically not enough at the club level to compete at a state and regional level. So you'll have to train more often than that. So the indoor costs over five months are probably a club's most, probably their largest uh, expenditure that a club will have all year. Okay, so just the facilities and the fields alone cost a club more probably than anything else. So let's talk about competitions. When you have games and league games, you've got to pay to rent the field. You have to pay to assign the referees and you have to pay the referees. And a typical referee in a 70-minute game, let's say, you're going to have a three-referee system and the center ref usually will get a dollar a minute. So if it's a 70-minute game, the center ref will get $70 and the assistant referees may get upwards of $40 or $50. So a club could pay $90, $100 or more per game in addition to the field rental. So if a club has 20 teams and each team gets about 8 to 10 games, you can do the math very quickly and see how much it is just for the referees. Then you have insurance. Then you have league registration fees. And then you have registration fees for the player to be part of U.S. youth or U.S. club soccer. And a lot of clubs do both based on the tournaments. Haven't even mentioned the tournaments. If you look at today's tournament, they're anywhere from $600 to $1,000 to enter a team to play in three games. 
On top of that, it's a pay-to-play tournament environment or pay-to-stay or stay-to-play, however you want to call it, where you've got to stay a limited number of or or a minimum number of nights in a designated hotel or group of hotels for that tournament to be able to participate. Now, that is certainly something that is expensive to the parent, which does then create this pay-to-play where if you can't afford the travel, it becomes difficult. But for the clubs who send multiple teams to those tournaments, they pay the tournament registration fee per team, and then they have to pay for a coach to travel to the tournament and stay in a hotel as well. So when those things are rained out, when those things get canceled, clubs don't get their money back. So now you're having tournaments pay insurance or or offer insurance for cancellation, which then further increases the fees. So those are just some of the fees. From a coach's perspective, this is one that is the big misnomer. So many people that I hear talk who aren't familiar with the way the economics of the sport works consider that coaches are these really high paid employees. When in fact, most coaches, once they include all of their mileage and expenses that come out of their pocket to coach a team, typically come very close to losing money just on the mileage deduction alone. For the past 12 years, I have driven my car for soccer over 35,000 miles a year, 12 years in a row. That's just for soccer. That's just, that. That's between. I'm sorry, that's between soccer and sort of driving around uh, locally, right? So 17, 18, $19,000 a year, miles a year on my personal car for travel to soccer training, to soccer tournaments, to soccer games. So from a coach perspective, those expenses are pretty high. And so the club has to pay a coach enough to attract the coach there to cover their expenses and to keep them there. And it's also very competitive for quality coaches. Soccer is one of the few sports that you're required to have a license to coach. And the higher level you go, the more the higher level license you get. And what people probably don't realize in the U.S., there's a, a grassroots model that just rolled out primarily for the volunteer coach who works in rec soccer because they're, they're, they're not paid to coach because of the rec soccer model or the community-based model is a much lower cost. They get fields donated sometimes, and the coaches are volunteers, right? So that in that model, that's great. But on the professional coaching side, you've got the F, which is an online course, then the D, which is two weekends, then the C, which is usually 10 days, two weekends in a week, and then the B, I think, is two weeks, and the A is like three weeks, and it's over a period of time. And you typically have to travel because they're not available in your local community. And not only do you have to travel, you have to stay in the ho- in a hotel or in a dorm or something like that. And you may have to take off work to participate in the licensing class. So while to get to an A license, they predict it takes about $8,000 for a coach to acquire all of the licenses over the years it takes to acquire that license, it's also going to take time off work, hotel stay, et cetera. So if a club pays that, that comes out of the club's pocket. If an individual coach pays that, that comes out of their pocket. And then they're going to require a higher salary from the club to be able to cover their costs and their value. So if you think about what it takes to run a soccer club, the coaching fees and the field fees and the tournament registration fees are very expensive. But by far and away, at least in our area, the indoor fees are by far the absolute highest, and they are so hard to get, and there's so much competition for field space 
that a lot of clubs will find leagues and other things to do in the winter, again, at another cost, so that their players have an opportunity to play in the wintertime. So one of the things that you'll hear mentioned in probably in a lot of, uh, you know, online and social media is that, well, the U.S. Development Academy system, which is the highest level soccer in the United States, which most of the national team pool comes from, um, they'll say that they've got it figured out on the MLS side because some MLS clubs actually fund the academy. There's this thing called the homegrown player where if you go up through the academy, the academy pays for your training. And they have the rights to you when you graduate without having to use a draft pick. And they can also pay a minimum salary because you've been getting free training through the process of this homegrown period. And it's really a great system, if you think about it in theory, in that a professional team is actually developing the community from within their community and bringing in players to train at a professional level to develop them up to the hopefully potentially play in the professional side. But there are only how many major league soccer teams and not all of them have an academy and not all of them are funded. So there are a number of other 80 or 90 or 100 other academies in the United States that are not funded by the MLS. And so for them to remain competitive, they have to offer the same type of training, which means they have to pay very high priced coaches. There is a requirement for the level of licensing that of coaches that they have and the kind of experience that they have. There is a requirement for the types and the number of facilities that they have, as well as the number of training sessions. So the U.S. Development Academy, because of the MLS funding for those teams, is actually driving the price even higher at the highest level in the academy system. I know this because I have a son who participates and his tuition and his travel is far more than I ever paid for local club soccer that played in a regional level league. And it is higher than all of the clubs in my local market. And on top of that, he has to travel out of the local market because there is not one where we live. So the cost to participate in the U.S. Development Academy over the past three years has been significant. And I'm fortunate to be able to have the resources to pay for that. And I know a lot of people can't. And I know there's a, not a lot of people that can afford to pay for club sports. But the problem that you have comes down primarily to, I believe, facilities. The facilities potentially are the biggest problem in why club sports like soccer are pay to play. I was just talking to a friend the other day who has a son that plays basketball. And there is just no gym space available. Why? Because the AAU clubs take up all of the time in the gyms, as do the schools, between volleyball and basketball. You now have club volleyball. You now have club basketball. You have some schools that do indoor soccer if they or, or other clubs that have indoor soccer inside of a gymnasium because they don't have the access to an indoor facility. So you've got a shortage of gymnasiums for volleyball and basketball. And to get gym space, it gets more and more expensive, just like it does ice time in hockey. So part of the reason that the pay-to-play is the way that it is is because the facilities that rent the space to the athletes and to the teams and to the clubs are the ones actually, in fact, driving the cost up. So the whole point of this really is not necessarily to come up with a solution. I don't have the solution right now. Unless and until the high schools come together, potentially the communities come together, 
and they make their facilities much more affordable and accessible to the clubs at a much more reasonable cost, then it's going to be very difficult for the model not to be pay to play. Because for a club to invest in a field or a facility on their own would be investments in the millions. And to recoup those millions means they would have to do that through private investment, through fundraising, through sponsorships, or guess where? Through the parents who support the club by paying tuition to become members of that club. And that's the challenge with pay to play. It is that to get quality coaching in the United States, the coach has to spend the money to be licensed, to have a quality coach at your club because of the competition. You do have to pay a fair amount of money to a coach. Now, again, at least in my area, there are not many full-time soccer coaches unless they coach every single day. Because in a lot of cases, coaches are former players themselves or coaches from another perspective who may train one or two teams two days a week plus games on weekends and a few tournaments. And they do that for much less money than you would imagine. And they do it because they love the sport. So they get a fair amount of money. But again, once you factor in all of the fees that they have to pay for apparel, for licensing, for personal insurance, and for travel, when they get time to do their taxes and write that off, they typically and often, as a 1099 employee, come up at a loss. And in some cases, if you lose money for too many years, it becomes a hobby and you can't even write those expenses off on your taxes any longer. So it's not the best thing as you can imagine. And again, I don't have the answer. But I'm bringing this to light because there are so much there is so much of a negative connotation right now in the pay-to-play model, but a lot of people really don't understand. Anybody that's on TV as an analyst right now who is criticizing the pay-to-play model probably well, I know for a fact because I've been in this in the in the club model for the past 13 years and I've seen the cost rise dramatically over the course of that time. And I would tell you that anyone that's an analyst that was a former player, when they came up, did not come up the same way. There was not a U.S. Development Academy. There were not private clubs like there are now. There were not so many clubs like there are now. There were very few. A lot of them played in public parks. The fields that they played on were not nearly the same as these multi-million dollar complexes that are out there now. And so the cost for them wasn't nearly as significant as it is now. There's a very good chance that back when they went to school, they could have had part of their college paid for. So they may not even appreciate really how much the pay-to-play model has changed because of how much the cost to support a club in today's day and age has risen since they played. So when they're out there on social media, getting the public perception of club sports all about how much money all of these clubs are making, it's very, you know, it's, it's, I would say, not as informed as it could be. And it needs to be known that it's not that people are doing it necessarily for the money, although people do do it for the money, they do do it for a career. From my circle of 
influence and from the folks that I've been around, most of the people do it because they love to give back. Several clubs, two previous clubs that I ran, were 501c3 nonprofit organizations. We did so so that we could keep the cost down and anything left over at the end of the year went back to the club, went back to the players in terms of facilities or improving facilities. And it always invested back into the club, whether it was hiring other coaches, fixing the fields, improving the indoor facilities, making them safer, etc. So the 501c3 designation as a nonprofit requires the club to put the money back in. And I think that's very good for youth sports. Most people don't know that or aren't aware that that happens. So if there was a way to bring the cost of operation down, primarily through fields and facilities, I don't think we would have the pay-to-play model quite as bad as we have it right now. That is not to say that there is not an entire industry of people that are out there trying to capitalize and profit from parents who are willing to pay extra money for their kids to participate in extra training and in extra leagues. That very much is the case. But the overall model in general to play for a club team requires tuition to cover the costs associated with the management of that team and club operation. And most of the time, the clubs that I know aren't leaving the end of the year with a huge surplus of funding because they're covering their costs and, oh, by the way, investing it back into the club. And it's not what most people think or say when it comes to the pay-to-play model. Now, again, I don't have an answer for it. And I'm also not saying that we can't offer and there shouldn't be something to be done about it. I just don't have the answer. All I'm doing is from a devil's advocate perspective, telling the other side of it because I'm sick of hearing about how this pay-to-play model has to go away and it's broken. And it's true. It is broken. It is very expensive to operate. But it is the environment that is out there today and is what has evolved because of the facilities, the space that's required, and the number of teams, clubs, and people competing for the space. Heck, even a men's team to operate in a league where they play eight games in the spring and eight games in the fall with 18 men on the roster. When you add up the field rental for games only, they don't train, as well as the referee fees, you're talking probably about $2,000 in the spring and $2,000 in the fall just to pay the fees for leagues and games so they can play as adults on the same facilities that the kids play. And that's the challenge that we have. And I'm not sure the answer, but I wanted to bring this to your attention because this is something that most people probably aren't going to talk about when they talk about why the play, why the pay to play model is where it is. It's just something that's not really widely known, but I think it's something that should be known. So for instance, the next time the weather cancellation happens because the community is trying to preserve the field. You can't just go the next day. Why? Because if it's a large club and a large facility, those fields are going to be reserved the next day for other teams. So sometimes when you miss because of weather, you can't take all of the teams that are outside inside because one, you may not have access at all to an indoor facility or two, you don't have the space to accommodate all of the teams that need to go inside. And that's another problem with the pay to play model. When parents say we spend so much money 
and the weather has caused cancellations and we are not getting anything out of it. And that is another problem and another concern that a lot of people have, at least in parts of the country that get weather. I can't really speak for the South, the Southeast, the Southwest, although I do know that in the Southwest is really hot. And I think a lot of the soccer doesn't happen in the in the uh, summer because of it. And I think there's a fair number of indoor facilities because of the weather and the heat. And so that's expensive as well. So that's my rant this week. The problems with the problems with youth soccer. I don't have an answer. All I have is a perspective. I hope you enjoy the perspective. Please like, please subscribe. Feel free to comment if you've got a problem or a challenge or you'd like to have a debate. Let me know. We can even talk online sometime. Thanks again for tuning in. Share this with others. And we will talk to you next time. Have a good one.